and welcome to boy, episode 53, which I guess is technically the two-year anniversary of oh. UConn 360. That's the only podcast in human history that covers the University of Connecticut from every conceivable angle. My name's Tom Breen. I'm your facilitator of sorts. Joining me as always, my colleagues, Maxine Philavong. Hello. Who's had a great day. I've had an awesome day today. A wonderful day. It's kind of a theme with Maxine. Every time she's here, are we bad luck for you? Maybe you're bad luck for me. Mm. We might be bad luck. We're we're bad luck for a lot of people. (laughs) Julie Bartuka also joining us. I'm here. And Ken Best. Behind the board. Um, We've got an exciting program for you. Hope you'll stick with it. Lots of fun and interesting stuff about the University of Connecticut. Why don't we jump right into it? Because there's plenty of news this week. Julie? Yeah. Our counterparts over at UConn Health have actually followed in our footsteps and started a podcast. It's called the UConn Health Pulse podcast, and they have one episode out right now which features a physician's assistant named Brad Biscup from the Lifestyle Medicine Program at the Pat and Jim Calhoun Cardiology Center. And he talks to hosts Chris DeFrancesco and Carolyn Pennington about helping them understand the seemingly ever-changing prevailing wisdom on cholesterol, diet, and heart health. You know, the debate about whether eggs are actually good for you or not. That takes up a large portion of this episode. You can read about it at UConn Today or visit s.uconn.edu slash UH Pulse Pod to listen. And I have to say, their first episode yeah. was very good because yeah. they are actual professional broadcasters. Just like us. <laughs> they didn't, uh, they didn't no, they all... they got paid to do it. I'm just kidding. <laughs> they didn't all hunker around a, an old cassette recorder <laughs> as we did in our first episode, which is a mistake. You know, Carolyn Pennington is... Many people may recognize yep. her from TV. I do want to say again, s.uconn.edu slash capital U, capital H, Pulse Pod. Give, that give them a listen. It's good stuff. Ken, you've got some news, too. Yes, we have some very good news. UConn has been recognized as among the top producers of Fulbright U.S. scholars from research institutions for the second time in the past four years. We have six UConn Fulbright scholars who are teaching and conducting research around the world this year, according to the Chronicle of Higher Education, which wrote about the Fulbright program. That program is in the State Department's Bureau of Educational and Cultural Affairs and is the government's flagship international educational exchange program. Scholars are selected for their academic merit and leadership potential with the opportunity to exchange ideas and contribute to finding solutions to shared international concerns. More than 185 UConn professors have received Fulbrights since the program was established in 1946. This year's scholars are sociologist Matthew Huey, who is at the University of Surrey in England, studying white racial identity and stratification of benefits. Chemistry professor Chala Kumar is researching bio-nanomaterials for 3D printing of bio-batteries at the University of Wollongong in Australia. Painter Catherine Myers is teaching at Benares Hindu University in India, and she and I are going to be talking when she gets back. I, we've already set that up. Civil and environmental engineer Malakwai Pena Mendez is studying urban areas at the Federal University of Alagos in Brazil. English professor Bhakti Sringanpur is studying East African literature at the University of Nairobi in Kenya, and marine scientist Michael Whitney is at the University of Iceland in Reykjavik conducting research on river influences on coastal and open ocean waters. Lots of good stuff. Wow, you really learned from the best here at UConn. Very cool stuff. Smarty pants. In sadder news, we'd like to offer our condolences to the family of John DiBiagio, who was UConn's 10th president, serving from 1979 to 1985. He passed away earlier this month at the age of 87. 
He originally came to Connecticut to be the executive director of UConn Health in the 70s before becoming president here. 79 to 85 was kind of a, a rough time in university history, but he did a lot of preparing groundwork for the success that came later. For example, he launched our first capital campaign. Hmm. And he did a lot of work in wresting control of tuition payments away from the state, which had not been the case before. So he did a lot of good work that his successors built on. He's very fondly remembered here. I think we talked about him on this program before as having donned the mascot costume. I was just going to say the... Um, played in oozeball. Mud volleyball, yeah. yeah. Oozeball. So Early oozeball days. After here, he served for a long time as president of Michigan State University in Tufts I did not know as that. Well. Yeah. Rest in peace. Rest in peace. All right. We've got... Uh, this was a superpowers team-up story this week. Yeah. Julie and Maxine. Yeah, the youngs and the olds <laughs> came together. Maxine and I tag-teamed stories, as you said. A few months ago, when it was just starting to get cold out, I spent a very interesting Friday evening in a remote corner of Horse Barn Hill watching a group of students practice all manner of lumberjack sports. Lumberjack sports? Well, inexplicably, Mariah Carey's All I Want for Christmas is You blared from a nearby <laughs> building. The Yukon Woodsman is a team here at Yukon. Uh, it's a club sport here at Yukon, one of these amazing things that we have that people may not know about. They compete in, as I said, lumberjack sports. So log rolling, they start fires, they chop with axes, they play this game that's sort of like cornhole with axes and logs. It's really There's axe throwing. Really cool. Some Something like wow. that. Yeah. That's a thing now in some bars. Yes. No, there's axe throwing establishments. But these people are serious and they're awesome. And no experience is required to join their club. They are looking for some members. In particular, they are looking for some female team members because that will help them be able to compete in more competitions. And I went out and talked to them and Maxine put it all together. <laughs> Although the traditional American lumberjacks aren't around today, the Yukon Woodsmen are keeping woodworking alive. From chopping to log rolling to everything lumberjack, the Yukon Woodsmen do it all. Um, everything's based off of stuff that lumberjacks would do, like as a you know as their job. So there's chopping, which you know chopping out a tree, lo- uh, rolling logs around. And there's some other really weird ones where there's a there's one that's called fire build, which is you have to build a fire and boil water as quickly as you can, which is based off of some competitions that lumberjacks would do to see who could get their coffee boiling the fastest. They told Julie the Woodsman welcomed students of all ages, from freshmen to even alumni. I had class with the president of the club, and he's like, "Oh, you should check it out." And then I didn't even know this was a sport. I didn't think it was real to begin with. <laughs> I'm totally new to the whole culture. And he was like, yeah, you should do it because we need more women on the team. And I said, okay. And the rest is history. <laughs> How long have you been doing it? This semester. Okay. A month or so, two months. Do you like it? Yeah. What do you like about it? It's very, it's interesting and it challenges just like you to do something that you never thought would be possible. And so when you do it, you really see progress within yourself and it's inspiring because you can take that and apply it to other things like your academics or whatever else you're going on in your life. Very cool. Like, there's one thing that's like axe throw, and <laughs> me and Lauren were trying to figure out how to do it because everyone's doing it so well. So we're like, okay, it's not an axe. We're gonna pretend it's like a bag of flour or something. And we use a lot of like analogies and metaphors, and then we got the technique down finally. Cool. But like, it's everything that you could think of with axes, saws, chainsaws, and wood. So- My name is Pete. Um, I graduated last year, I was on the team for three years, and just had a ton of fun with it, competing and traveling all over to competitions. And Do you have, like, a proudest accomplishment on the team or um, best last moment? Last year, when I was a senior, I competed in the steel qualifiers. It's like they're collegiate qualifiers, and 
if you win that, then you go on semifinals in Wisconsin, I think. I didn't win anything, but it was still a lot of fun to compete. Hi, uh, I'm Mitch. I'm a sophomore here. I'm a mechanical engineer. I started, well, I first got into timber sports when I was a kid, actually. I wasn't actually competing as a kid, but I used to always go to the Goshen Fair in Litchfield, around that area. And they always had the woodsman competitions there with, like, Mike Sullivan and, like, all the really, really good guys. So I used to watch that all the time. They used to do, like, the wood carving competitions and where they would make the chairs. Mm-hmm. And my sister got the chair, like, two years in a row. Like, Mike Sullivan gave it out to her. So it was just, like, a really cool moment. And when I was coming to UConn, I was, like, doing a little research on, like, clubs that I could join when I got here. And I saw the woodsman club, and I was, like, and I, was, like I have to go to that. So I, I came, and I met the team, and I just started practicing. And it was just, it was just tons of fun. Very cool. Do you have a favorite memory from your time so far? So far? I don't know. There's a lot of funny memories. I would say the, the last meet was a lot of fun. We got to introduce a lot of new freshmen to the, to the sport, and we got to see how they compete and all that stuff. And we did, we did really well in a lot of events that we've been practicing really hard over the past couple of weeks. So it was just like a really like, proud moment to see everyone. Everything like, kind of came together, you know? What do you like the most about being part of this club? Definitely the people. People in this club are really great. It's kind of like what makes or break, breaks any club, to be honest. Everyone's just like here to have a good time, and they, like, they all like the sport too, which makes it a lot better. Like No one drags their feet to practice. It's always like you know better part of the week. Believe it or not, UConn Woodsmen aren't the only college woodsmen out there. Dubbed Timber Sports, the teams compete in several meets a year. So it's kind of like a track meet. <laughs> so who we compete against is a whole bunch of other universities and colleges, like the University of Vermont, New Hampshire. We have Colby College, Dartmouth, and quite a few more, like ESF and Paul Smith. There's a whole bunch of different events. Some of them are team events, so you do all together, like log roll, team cross cut, pulp toss, pack board. Then you have your triple events, so three people. And you have typically two triple events because you have six people on a team. That can be chopping or splitting usually. Then there's your double events, and then you also have single events. So we're going to do a uh, pulp log, uh, which is pretty much just like cornhole, except with um, giant logs. Okay. Four logs, and you have the two sticks for the pit. It's usually 20 feet apart. I brought it together. And you, you do three people on each side because it's a team of six, and you throw the logs back and forth. It's one point per log that lands within the stakes, and then you just you try to get up to 48 as fast as you can, 48 points. Yeah, so you try to have to get the logs to land uh, at least within the two stakes. If they land short, then you have to pull them behind the stakes, and just one person will take, you know, throw them. And how far apart the are the stakes? And how, how 20 far? feet. For me, there's usually three different, I guess, sections or divisions. There's men's, women's, and Jack and Jill. Jack and Jill is going to be usually three men and three girls, um, but sometimes it's like they don't have enough girls for a whole team, like we don't, and they'll do, like for like a whole women's team, so they'll do like a Jack and Jill that's like four or five girls and two or one guy. How heavy do you think those logs are? They're pretty heavy. Ours are heavier than what we usually use in competition. That's probably so, smart, right? Yeah. So you're, they're easier? Yeah. Though it does also depend on the school. What we try to do um, for practice is every time we uh, miss one, we have to do five push-ups. Usually get pretty good pretty quickly. We'll do call-outs, too. So we're, like, standing on, like, opposite sides. So the person here, well, I guess she would be calling out for her. That side would be the outside, and this side is the inside. And so you would call the direction that you want them to, like, have it land or, like, throw it. Come on, tip up, Sean, tip up. There you go. Outside. 
outside. What would you do with the chainsaw in competition? So there's two of them so that one stock saw, a stock chainsaw at normal. It's just the fastest, whoever can cut down and then cut back up the fastest. And then there's also another one, it's called this stack, and it's however many, we call them cookies. It's just pieces of wood. Mm -hmm. You can stack on top of each other before you knock it over. Do you like, you like keep it? Yeah, we put it in one of those stands, and it's just, it's all about pulling the saw out of the wood the fastest. So it doesn't fall, right? So yeah, it so it doesn't, okay. if it lands back on the chain, it'll like throw it out. You can find the Yukon Woodsman on Facebook.com slash Yukon Woodsman and at Yukon underscore Woodsman on Instagram. That's very cool stuff. Super fortunately, interesting. Fortunately, we have lots of forests around us here. We, in fact, yeah. have a Yukon forest. We do have a Yukon forest. Yeah, it really made me, again, wish that I knew that these things were happening when I was a student. Not Same that here. I would have done that, but it was really cool. <laughs> do we really want Julie throwing? I don't think axe? you do. I think that's very I've done it at those places, and it's a lot of fun. But. Those things kind of freak me out. What yeah. if it comes right back at you? Super yeah. liability issues. I don't know how they get insured, but that's not what they do at the uh, Yukon Woodsman. They, they don't do throw me. axes at each other. No, they don't. They're very safe. <laughs> well, there's so many uh, activities uh, here you can do, but uh, of course, there's also a, a breadth of academic subjects where we learn all kinds of things about the world around us and can talk to a faculty member who is studying a topic of particular recent interest. Yes, I spoke with English professor Chris Files, who's the director of American Studies. I spoke with him several years ago about his first book on this subject. He has a lot of interests, including class and racial formation, popular culture, ethnic studies, social movements, and uh, working class cultural studies. But since 2012, much of his work has been on anti-fascism and the fascist movements in the United States. He has appeared on PBS, NPR, and CBC Radio to discuss this. Six years ago, his book, Haunted by Hitler, Liberals, the Left, and the Fight Against Fascism in the United States, traced the history of anti-fascist politics in the United States since the 1930s. Uh, now he's the co-editor of the U.S. Anti-Fascism Reader, a new anthology published last month by Verso Press. We got together again to talk about his interest in this subject and his new book. What brought you to that subject, first of all? What brought me to that subject in the first place was a very different and more low-stakes moment, which was that I had done a lot of work in the 1930s and 40s, and I just saw the subject of fascism and the word fascism beginning to lose its meaning. You had people on the right, particularly Jonah Goldberg, who put out this book called Liberal Fascism, which was basically saying that anyone who uses government power for anything is a fascist. And in, in that book was gaining some traction. And I knew from the book and the conclusions of the book that we have had the functional equivalent of fascist movements throughout American history. And those have done a lot of damage to democracy, even though they haven't taken full state power. So I knew this, the stakes of the issue were real in the US. But what I didn't expect was that they would become so very real so quickly. In fact, part of the conclusions of Haunted by Hitler, the monograph, was uh, a little bit premature. You know, we have fascist movements and mobilizations and things like this, but um, we'll never have president who will really kind of inhabit fascist rhetoric. But uh, with Trump, you really do have a different animal. And uh, when you do have actual Nazis on both sides of the Atlantic and Klansfolk and quote-unquote white nationalists actively excited about 
the election of this guy, then you have to go, okay, well, what's going on? So let's fast forward now to the current book, which is an anthology. And anthologies are great because there's so much information. You don't have to read it straight through. You can sort of select what you would like. You go through the history of journals and political people and scholars addressing various issues along the way right up until, the, I guess, the, the pre- premier scholar, uh, Mark Bray, uh, who wrote Antifa, the Anti-Fascist Handbook, where he addresses all kinds of, of issues. Uh, what's the challenge then in trying to bring all of this information together because you have so much that you can work with. Yeah, I mean, I think you just named it, right? It's it's figuring out what's most important when there's so many important things that have been said since the 1920s in the United States on this subject. The compilation is really mostly non-academic writings. It's people who are in movement cultures and who are trying to stop fascism in various ways, really, you know, mostly since the 1930s up into the present. It's mostly non-academics, though there's some academics, mostly Americans or some um, Europeans who are in exile in the United States. What we identified, you know, which was similar to the conclusions of, of the earlier book, which was that uh, if you want to talk about fascism in the United States, you have to disaggregate a fascist state from fascist movements, from fascist kind of personalities. And, you know, we've never had a fascist state in the United States, including now. But we have had fascist movements that have been quite vast. The ones that we name and we trace in the U.S. anti-fascism reader is similar to Haunted by Hitler, which is, first of all, the uh, the Ku Klux Klan of the 1920s, which was a mass movement. Um, the Coughlin, Father Coughlin's um, Christian Front in the 1930s, also an anti-Semitic mass movement. Some of the anti-civil rights ferment in the 50s and 60s that culminates with George Wallace. And also elements of the Christian right. And also elements of the Trump base today. That's our kind of most, our most of our, when we're naming kind of fascist mobilizations in the U.S., that's mostly what we're focusing on. One point that does come back up in various pieces of the essays is the point that you made that there's not a a fascist party, but there are isolated pieces of movements that keep coming to the surface almost on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. Uh, To what do you attribute that? It's a little bit more difficult to – to name those pieces, right, in the United States. In Europe, you've got the, the multi-party system, right? So in Germany, for example, you know, if elements of the left and the right can cohere in their various different parties, and, you you know, you have a libertarian party, you know, the um, FDP, and then you have a more kind of far-right, you know, white nationalist party, the AFD, and then you have normal conservatives, you know, at the CDU. If elements of the right can just kind of disaggregate themselves, it's easier to see, um, in the United States, we have the two-party system, so all these strands of the left and all these strands of the right just cohere in the, either the Democratic or the Republican parties, and it's harder to parse apart. But, you know, why we have fascist mobilizations in the United States is because, you know, we have a long history of race and racial violence in the United States that provides the ground out of which uh, fascist movements can grow. If you have a history of kind of, you know, settler colonialism, Indian removal, quote unquote, if you have a history of frontier warfare, of, you know, slavery, of of Jim Crow and whiteness, basically, you know, and I'm not saying uh, American history 
history is reducible to all those things. There's more to American history than just, you know, violence. But if you have that history, you have a ground out of which these movements can grow. At the same time, you you look at the liberal left Mm -hmm. uh, as having acted in discussed issues, forcing these things to bubble up on the extreme right. Talk about that a little bit on how that is articulated because it comes back time and again in, in various essays and again at the in the introduction. There's something that is really w- was well known in Europe and became much more common sense here, which is that this thing called anti-fascism is a left-wing phenomenon for the most part. And I'm not saying here that the left worldwide has not been responsible for atrocities or has not been responsible for authoritarian movements in its own right. That's, that's clearly not the case. But what you do see for the most part is the people who are most afraid of this thing called fascism and are mobilizing against it tend to be on the political left. And, you know, and what we say in the book, you know, this is from um, co-editor Bill Mullen had, had come up with this phrase, is that in the United States, fascism has been over-imagined and under-theorized, which is to say that we acknowledge that the left has a history of being hyperbolic and overusing the F word. And so it's really important to have a more fine-tuned sense of what is fascism and what is not. In any case, what we try to include also in collections of essays were not just when Americans on the left or American liberals were calling fascism, but also when they were analyzing something that didn't quite meet the fascist label but came close. So what we found is that the American anti-fascist tradition can be just as instructive when it doesn't use the F word as when it does, right? So for example, there's an an essay by Julius Jacobson who was writing in the early 1950s about McCarthy. And he said, McCarthy comes close. He's got a fascist personality, but he doesn't command a fascist movement and the United States is still not a fascist state. That's actually quite useful. And it's, I think it's useful for thinking about Trump. Fast forwarding, when we have Enzo Traverso, who says, you know, almost 70 years later, almost says the same thing about Trump. Enzo Traverso, who's the Italian historian at Cornell, and in his essay, which was only written two years ago, mm-hmm. uh, 2017, that's how current you've, you've brought this, this list of uh, writers uh, to us. Um, you say, since Trump does not respect the rule of law, traditional politics risks are becoming obsolete at the very best. Largely inadequate politics is returning to the streets. I've been kind of more interested lately in the history of the the brown shirts, actually, in the essay. And we talk a little bit about this in the in the book. But the um, it's the Sturmabteilung. This is the this is the um, the, the brown shirts were the kind of the the movement of Nazi Germany before they took state power, right? And then they were dissolved um, in you know 1934 by Hitler. When they before they took state power, when Nazism was just a street movement, you know there the parallels to some of the things like the Proud Boys and you know Patriot Prayer and some of these things are pretty uncanny because they are really animated by a fight against the quote unquote Marxist left, against the Antifa in the streets. There really are devoted to street fights against the left. That's their main thing. And so I think 
that's when he says politics that return to the street. You know, we see these images from Charlottesville or Portland. We do have a sense of that. I mean, I think a difference is, is that in Germany in the 30s, early 30s and the late 20s, you did have something like an equivalent of Charlottesville like every weekend. It was the, the level of street conflict was much, much higher, which is not to say we can rest assured, but it's also a sign that we just we do need to be you know historically accurate in our comparisons too. Well, as I said, this is the second time we spoke. He has studied this in depth and really when you realize the history of this since the 30s, it's, it's scary that it still pops up pretty mm-hmm. regularly in this country. Percolating under the surface. Uh, very timely topical stuff. Speaking of timely. Speaking of topical. Where are we going? Uh, as we record this, the day we record this, it's National Inventors Day here in the United States. That's as you cool. as you listen to it, it is not National Inventors Day, but every day at UConn is National Inventors Day, I like to think. And did you invent something today? Oh I have uh, I didn't invent anything, but many people here. We have many, many, many illustrious awesome inventors. And we're gonna talk about one of those, Tom's History Corner, who's not only was not only an alum, but also a professor here. This is Professor Daniel Noble. So does anyone know what twenty twenty uh, is the hundredth anniversary of? Nope. Ken. <laughs> Ken. You Are you know. implying that Ken was there? No, Ken should know this. This is going to be. This is a subject near and dear to your heart. Something about radio yes. broadcasting. Oh, well, it might have been the first radio broadcast. The first commercial radio, nineteen twenty. Really? Yep. And uh, that sounds late. UConn has some connection to that. That connection Apparently is Professor do. Dan Noble. Who uh, was a graduate when it was Connecticut Agricultural College and became a professor when it was Connecticut State College. Okay. And as a student, he built UConn's first radio station. Very cool. WABL. Uh, according to Mark Roy, who did a lot of research on this, uh, we don't know what the WABL stood for, but those were the original call letters. They changed to WHUS later on. Those are the ones we know and love. Mm-hmm. He was so good at this that he was actually hired to build Connecticut's first ever FM radio station, which is mm. WDRC. Really? So he had a lot of experience in this area, and he was noticed by Paul Galvin, who was the head of the company that became Motorola. This is cool. I did not know any of this. Who hired Dan Noble to come to Motorola and become director of research. What Galvin was particularly impressed by was something that Dan Noble had developed for the Connecticut State Police, a two-way radio. So prior to this, police had no way to communicate with each other. There was no car-to-car communication. Dispatchers could send out one-way radio, but cars could not respond. Huh. Police would have to like pull over and call. When they want, you know, they're like, okay, we're, he's getting away, whatever. Find I don't know. Payphone. I don't know what t- 1920s police said, <laughs> but um, probably that only. So uh, yeah, that's, that's the one thing. He's getting away. See, uh, <laughs> ah. Dan Noble invented the first two-way radio for police, and then anywhere ever, anywhere ever was in Connecticut, <sighs> the Connecticut State Police, and he kept refining this and created something called the walkie-talkie. Which was used by the U.S. Army extensively. How is this not like in every building at UConn there should be like a plaque to him? This is so cool. Well, I – There's going to be a twist. Is there a weird twist? No, there's not a weird twist. But I I suspect it's because he moved to Arizona after working for Motorola and he convinced Galvin to start a a large research facility there. In fact, the Arizona State University has named a giant building after him and calls him the father of Arizona industry. Wow. So – so they took him from us. Thanks, Dan. No, um, <laughs> he was uh, named a distinguished alumni in 1976. He passed away in 1980. Yeah, That's so fascinating. A lot of UConn connections, not only to FM radio, but also to two-way radio, walkie-talkie. He was also a pioneer of transistor research. I knew about like the frisbee and the wiffle ball in yep. Connecticut, but not yep. not walkie-talkie. I know, right? That's awesome. Very cool stuff. So yeah, our, our hats are off to uh, professor and alum Dan you, Noble. You provide a real service, Tom. 
I, <laughs> this is really good. It didn't sound entirely serious. I meant it. Um, I did. <laughs> yeah, so every time you're listening to FM radio, you're using the research. WDRC. Or using your walkie-talkie to talk to your friends at a sleepover. <laughs> well, I don't know what people do with walkie-talkies. Or when you read the old Dick Tracy cartoons. And, yeah. And the two-way, the two-way radio. radio. All things we all do very often. That's right. <laughs> I'm mentioning at WNPR this semester, so. Yeah, Yay. see? Yeah. There's more radio. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Thank you, Dan. So explain to me the difference between AM and FM. Go. Frequency modulations. But AM like, and FM. That's all you need to know. How does it work? FM just has like a bigger frequency. I don't know the answer. My, my father would be outraged that oh. he didn't know the answer. Because, I mean, radios used to only have AM bands. Like I just really like how AM always sounds like it's 1956. Yeah. Like no matter where you are, what you're doing. Well, we could bring like... Pete in from next door. He can explain no, it. that would take all day. He actually majored in radio when he was in college. Most of the radios in my house are only AM radios. There's no FM band. Wow. Yeah. You have a lot of radios. You got rid of a lot of radios. I did, but I still have uh, probably 50 radios. Super cool. Radios. My dad was a, he would buy and repair antique radios and That's sell awesome. them. This uh, was enlightening. This was enlightening. So, uh, yeah, uh, happy National Inventors Day to everyone in Yukon Nation. Thanks for listening. As always, if you want more of this, you can find us on twitter.com at a Yukon podcast. You can also find me at TJ Breen or at Maine underscore old, where I posted a picture, a pretty cool picture of John DiBiagio recently with two other Yukon presidents and two governors of Connecticut. I really like the picture of the woman in her dorm room with the Madonna poster. Yes. That you posted. Yes. A vintage 1988. Mm-hmm. You can, uh, without even knowing it's from 1988, you can look at it and you say, know it's that's from 1988. <laughs> Maxine, is there anything you want the good people of podcast land to know? You can follow me on Twitter at Maxine Philavong, and I am interning on the two morning shows at WMPR. So I'm going to do Where We Live and the Colin McEnroe show. So, so exciting. Very awesome. cool. Julie? I meant Julie Bartuga. That's about it. Ken? Saturdays from 3 to 5 on 91.7 WHUS, UConn's sound alternative. And, of course, on the WHUS version of the UConn 360 podcast. All thanks to Dan. Noble. Noble. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, everybody.